Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast. This one uh, is one of those hot topics in CT, and I'll call it July 2012. And these are some of the things I've read recently that I thought of interest, and rather than waiting to put them into different lectures, I thought I would put them together for you. So if you look at Bone MSK, there's a really couple really good things. And there's an article, actually, I wanted to write. I started this article about 25 years ago, never finished it, and we were going to start it again, and this article came out. You know, a couple of years ago, when we started doing cardiac CT, the question was, did you need to look at the entire lung fields? And the radiologist would say yes, and the cardiologist would say no. No one asked you to look at the lungs, just look at the coronaries. And it became sort of a political football. And in fact, one of the vendors actually made a scanner which did not provide any lungs, so you would block the lungs out. And then you remember that the American College of Radiology, the American Heart Association, all agreed that since you scanned the patient already, you should look at the lung fields because it's typically an older population, and one way you may pick up incidental lung cancer. But then I wondered, when we do in radiology thoracic spine or lumbar spine or even sacrum, we tend to cone down over those areas. And that's true with CT, and that's what I was interested in, but also in MR. So should you, particularly with CT, since you scanned the patient, reconstruct a full field of view? Now, of course, the problem with that is it's typically a non-contrast CT, and you'll pick up a lot of findings which may be incidental that may not be of importance, indeterminate renal lesions or things of that sort. So it's really this catch-22. This article by Lee made the point, reviewing the full field of view from lumbar spine CTs will result in the detection of a small number of substantial extraspinal pathological findings in addition to many benign incidental findings. And that really is what's expected, right? The issue is these incidental ones tend to be problematic if you need to chase them, but you will pick up important things. And in their series, extraspinal findings were present in 40% of adult outpatients undergoing lumbar spine CT exams for low back pain and or radiculopathy, most of whom had findings classified as benign and not requiring further workup. And that might be a renal cyst. Again, full field of view were required to best visualize these findings in almost 80% of cases, which means you weren't going to see them. I saw a case the other week where it was a pickup on an MR of something at the very edge, we scan the patient, and it ends up being probably plexiform neurofibromas. So a very important, very good article making the point. A small percentage, about 15% of patients, had indeterminate or potentially clinically important findings requiring further evaluation, substantial extraspinal findings consisting of early-stage renal cell cancer or TCC or CLL, sarcoid, abdominal aortic aneurysms were present. So 4% of this population, it was a relatively small population, 400 people, had significant findings. So again, look at that quote, 4%. And that doesn't surprise any of us. Remember, screening CT, a lot of false positives, a lot of incidental things, but every once in a while you pick up something important. So this is indeed a good question. What should you be doing in your practice? Should you reconstruct the full abdominal or chest CT, depending what spinal part you're scanning, and then look carefully at things? Again, 14% of the time, you're going to pick up something that needs to be worked up. Only about a third of them is going to be really important, but again, 4% or so is important. So I think it's something you're going to need to think about in your practice. Okay, very, very important. In terms of kidney, I saw a number of good things written, particularly the last month, 
Um, there was an article by Patel looking at the follow-up of renal cell carcinoma and made the statement that imaging follow-up protocols should be tailored according to the clinical scenario. They commented that further experience is necessary to better refine imaging strategies, especially regarding follow-up after thermal ablation or anti-angiogenic therapy and those being maintained on active surveillance. So a good point is that perhaps not every patient needs to be followed the same way. So should you do different follow-ups if patients have had a nephrectomy versus someone with ablation versus someone receiving chemotherapy? And they did make the point how often you follow the patients, how often you scan them. There's no clear plan that everyone accepts. How often does recurrence occur? Maybe that's the biggest question. Well, it depends on the original pathology, whether it's a sarcoma versus papillary, which is unlikely to recur. Depends on stage of tumor presentation. Depends on mode of therapy. Syndromic renal cells have a worse prognosis. But does that make a difference if you should follow patients up at three months or six months or a year? Patel goes on to say that local recurrence was seen in 2.7% of patients after partial nephrectomy and less than 5% elsewhere. Also commenting that even after successful surgical or ablative therapy, up to 5% of patients with sporadic renal cells and without a recognized hereditary risk factor will develop a metachronous RCC goes again another step. 20 to 30% of patients with surgically treated localized RCC will eventually develop distant metastasis, most commonly to lungs, lymph nodes, bones, liver, and brain. So a very important thing to recognize is these patients are going to be followed for a long time. Again, how we should follow them three months, six months, a year, that's really the question. Perhaps early on, particularly with ablation, much more frequently, with nephrectomy, perhaps, with lower-grade tumors, less frequently. But again, making the point we need to really be thinking about this. And in the patterns of metastatic disease mean you need to scan the chest and the abdomen because it's lungs, number one, but lymph nodes, bone, liver, contralateral kidney, adrenal are all things that indeed will vary in percentage depending on the scenario. Now, in terms of ablation, uh, typically one month, three months, six months, and 12 months, and after the first year follow-up every six to 12 months, and follow-up should be done for at least five years. And again, because ablation, you always wonder, did you get the entire tumor? This will be a very good strategy. So again, I think it's important that not all patients are the same, even though the diagnosis is the same, come up with some strategies, and we'll try to work on something and put something in writing that may be helpful. Another good series of articles was this article talking about hematuria and the Dutch guidelines on hematuria. And obviously, it's you know in a different country than ours, but I think what I liked about the article was how they thought about things, that things like hematuria, whether it's macroscopic or microscopic, makes a big difference. And that algorithms, how we examine the patient, should be tailored to the populations at risk and make that low risk, medium risk, and high risk. So some of the factors, they commented on risk factors for urothelial neoplasms, microscopic versus macroscopic hematuria. And I'll come back to that in a second. Smoking, age of the patients. Obviously, the older patient has a higher risk. Male over females, micturition complaints, urothelial cancer history, chronic UTIs, chemical exposure. The latter things all increase the likelihood of a tumor. 
So this point about microscopic and macroscopic. In patients with microscopic hematuria, neoplasm is uncommon, and the largest study was found in but 2.2% of cases. Renal cell in 1% and bladder cancer 3.7%. And again, that's age-dependent. This is probably an older population. But with macroscopic hematuria, the risk for malignancy is high, 10 to 28% of cases overall, and up to 10% of younger patients than age 40. So again, you can see that microscopic, you're talking 1-2%. Macroscopic, you're talking 10 to 28%. So you need to have a better protocol for the macroscopic. You need to be much more careful. They also break down very nicely that hematuria is not a simple diagnosis because it can be vascular, glomerular, uropathelial, and miscellaneous. And key things in vascular would be arterial embolism or thrombosis, AV malformations, nutcracker syndrome, inglomerular, IgA nephropathy, Alport's disease, and other primary and secondary glomerulonephropathies is a better way of saying it. And then interstitial, allergic interstitial nephritis, analgesic nephropathy, renal cystic disease, polynephritis, transplant rejection. You can see there are many causes of hematuria that are not tumor. When you get to the tumor side of things, uroepithelial, well, malignancies, be it TCC or renal cell, but also this heavy physical exercise and trauma and papillary necrosis and cystitis and prostatitis and parasitic diseases and stone disease and radiation. So you can see there are many possibilities. Again, when we examine the patient, we need to be considering all of these possibilities. And if those four categories weren't enough, the miscellaneous, hypercalciuria, hyperuricosuria, and sickle cell disease. And in their article, they do make some recommendations. They talk about CTRography, for example. It can be a first-line test or a problem-solving tool. For first-line diagnosis, it should be reserved for the patients with the highest pretest probability, and they typically use age 50 or older or macroscopic hematuria with other risk factors. And they do make the point that imaging is key in the analysis of hematuria. But again, think about CTRography being a high-dose examination, and that at times the upper tracts are rare. And so again, if you only have microscopic hematuria, perhaps your, your uh, attention needs to be kind of moderated in terms of how you do the protocols. And so the multiple phases, they say, should be justified by weighing benefit versus risk factor. Okay, a very good point. And so, for example, in our practice, if you're under 50 years of age, when we do our trial phase imaging, we don't scan your bladder. If you're over 50, we scan your bladder because we can pick up small bladder cancers. But under 50, bladder cancers are rare, and over 50, it's common as a cause of hematuria. So again, you probably need less phases or covering less distances when you're doing a younger as opposed to an older patient. Now, a couple other articles. This is an article by Pooler. Um, in my talks I've given you, I've showed you articles that people have written that if you have a well-defined mass on a non-contrast CT and it's over 90 Hounsfield units, some people say 70, it's a very high percent, 99.9% .9 that it's benign. This article by Pooler and Associates, they looked at what was the attenuation value of renal cell carcinoma on non-contrast CT in their experience. All cases were proven renal cells. And interestingly, the non-calcified zones measured 20 to 70 Hounsfield units on non-contrast CT. 
Indeterminate renal lesions on non-contrast CT measuring within this 20 to 70 Hounsfield unit range are in a danger zone and warrant further workup, whereas lesions that fall entirely outside this category may be considered benign. So you see that point they went with that 70 and above is probably a high-density renal cyst when it's well-defined. Another 20 is probably a simple cyst or if it's low enough, an angiomyolipoma. So that 20 to 70, they say, if you do a non-contrast CT and someone, even a well-defined lesion, measures 30, you better do a dedicated CT scan to rule out a neoplasm. The average maximum unenhanced attenuation for all lesions was 39.7, and the minimum was 27.5. So you can see the tumor is in that 30 to 40 Hounsfield unit range. And you can see very nice definition uh, minimum region of interest attenuation was less than 20 Hounsfield units in 25% of tumor and maximum greater than 70. So again, that 20 to 70 seems to work out very well. And they concluded that given that renal lesions completely outside this range have proven to be benign in previous work, we conclude that indeterminate renal lesions on unenhanced CT that contained areas of region of attenuation values that cross over into this 20 to 70 Hounsfield unit danger rays danger range will generally warrant further workup. So that's a very good takeaway message. Non-contrast CT, doing a stone protocol, something measures 50, you better do a protocol. You better not just blow it by and say it's a high-density renal cyst. Over 70, under 20, perhaps you can blow by. Okay, what else? I read some good articles on trauma, just some big numbers, 100,000 deaths from trauma annually in the US, the leading cause of death in patients age one to 44, Blunt trauma accounts for 70% of trauma cases. Two-thirds of these are related to motor vehicle accidents. And it's not a trivial process, $300 billion cost in the U.S. each year. In this article by Dresden, they spoke about the use of newer CT scanners, in this case a 64-slice scanner, to be able, with a single continuous acquisition, whole-body CT angiography is able to demonstrate all potentially injured organs, as well as vascular and bone structures from the circle of Willis to the symphysis pubis. And their point was that you can do one study, get all of the information, the value of whole body CTA in detecting important not to miss injuries at each anatomic level, the benefit of reviewing multiplanar and 3D images for timely and accurate interpretation, and potential pitfalls that should be avoided, as well as ongoing controversies and future trends were all addressed in their article. So some points. Love when they said, when you're looking at CT, the benefit of reviewing MPR and 3D images for timely and accurate interpretation is critical. They mentioned that acquisition of isotropic voxels confers near equal resolution in any plane. And so we really need to move away from this over-reliance on axial images, which is just because it's always been their way. The use of coronal and sagittal should no longer be considered complementary. Their point is you need to look at coronals and sagittals in every case, and we 100% agree. Now, in terms of their protocol, it was a 64-slice scanner. What they would do is unenhanced brain first, then enhance from circle of Willis to the symphysis. One quick run, you can see the parameters a 0.5 rotation time, 0.7 pitch, 3 millimeter thick sections every 1.5 millimeters. Uh, they did a scan delay at 20 seconds for patients under age 50 and 25 for patients over 55 years of age. They used a biphasic injection of 100 ml and then followed by 15 uh, uh, ml. 
then three cc's for 13 seconds, and then 30 cc's of saline. A little bit of a complicated protocol since you're changing the protocol about four times. So you got to be careful with that. But the point being, they were trying to stretch out uh, the bolus. But with faster scanners like we have, which is a dual source, where you can scan substantially faster, not a pitch of 0.7 or 0.9, but a pitch of 3.2 to 3.4, then you inject as fast as you can one fast bolus. They didn't use oral contrast material, didn't always routinely get delayed scans, and typically scan with patients' arms above heads. So uh, very, very good findings in their article. Uh, they also, um, I read a few articles also this month beyond that in trauma on bladder and talking about bladder injuries, that the complications of bladder injuries, the morbidity and mortality. And so CT cystography being so good, it's very important with the right patients to be able to do those studies, do them routinely, differentiating you know, injury from no injury or extraperitoneal from intraperitoneal extravasation when the process occurs. All right, let me look at one more thing and then we'll take a break. There was an article in the New York Times waking up to major colonoscopy bills, and they spoke about how colonoscopy is very expensive because it's a big surprise. Now patients are getting anesthesia, and all of a sudden you think your insurance is covering you, and you get this gigantic bill for anesthesia. So it's not a trivial process, but what was annoying about this article, because I thought it's a great reason for getting virtual colonoscopy, there's no anesthesia, but they said other, conserv other alternatives included uh, fecal occult blood tests, sigmoidoscopy, uh, they didn't mention barium enema, well, they shouldn't, but they didn't mention virtual colonoscopy, which would get around the anesthesia. So again, I think informing the public becomes very critical to us. An article by Pooler, another article, speaking to patients who had both a, a, classic, um, and a classic colonoscopy and uh, virtual colonoscopy, and they found that patients of 441 patients who had experienced both uh, optical colonoscopy and the uh, our, uh, colonoscopy with CT, 71% preferred CT and 13% preferred optical colonoscopy. Of all patients, 29.6 indicated that they may not have undergone optical colonoscopy screening if CT colonography were not available. So it does make the point that it's really a good thing to do. Another thing written about CT colonography, um, looking at the participants in the Akron trial, for most measures of diagnostic performance and in most subsets, the difference between senior age participants and those younger than 65 years was not statistically significant. And here is just some of the pure data on that. And the reason that's important is we're trying to get payments from Medicare for older patients that CT colonography can be used as a primary colorectal screening tool in patients older than 65 years as well as those aged 50 to 65. Okay? Very, very important. Other things I read in terms of colon, let me just touch on them real quickly. There was an article about diverticulitis. You know, sometimes you see bad diverticulitis on CT and there's a lot of thickening and you want to say can't rule out superimposed cancer, get a colonoscopy when the patient's better. Uh, this article looked at, is there a risk? And they concluded there's limited data to support their recommendation to perform colonoscopy after a diagnosis of acute diverticulitis, 
on the basis of a limited number of published studies, the pooled prevalence of colorectal cancer after a CT diagnosis of acute appendix, of acute diverticulitis is but 2.1%. So again, if you see a mass and you're really suspicious, okay, it's easy enough to do if it hasn't been done. If not, don't do a blanket recommendation because the percent positives is indeed very small. So a number of other things I can look at and why don't we pick up techniques and protocols when we come back after lunch. And I'll see you then. Thanks a lot.